What do we do when the Bible is in conflict with science? From Isaiah 40, I read the whole chapter in the first hour, but we just sang most of that chapter in one way or the other in this last song. So let me read verses 7 and 8 for you. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, not one jot or tittle will pass until every single word of this book has been fulfilled. And at the end of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John said, blessed is the man that reads this book, speaking predominantly of Revelation, but... Interestingly enough, coming at the end of the New Testament, the final book of the 66, saying whoever reads the words of the pages of this book will be blessed, and whoever neglects and ignores and basically uh, supplants these words will be cursed. God's Word is the Word that stands forever. We've been considering the authority of the Bible. I think I mentioned to you, Carrie and I were talking about that a couple of weeks ago, and, and how weird it is in the culture today if you go out and proclaim to somebody that you believe that the Bible is actually authoritatively true, that you believe that the Bible means what it says, says what it means, and it's to be taken literally, and that it has the, the power to tell us absolutely and for sure what to do, how to live, how to act, what to believe, you go out there and you talk like that today, and our culture thinks we've basically lost our minds and particularly in the realm of science, what do we do when the Bible comes into conflict with science? That, that's one of the biggest questions that all of us face, but it's also one of the biggest questions that, that young people, particularly in our schools and colleges, universities, and graduate training across the country, they have to, to, to somehow grapple with, how does my faith relate to what I'm being told? by people who have PhDs and years of investigation and years of learning who hold the prestigious chairs of some of the greatest departments of universities across the country, and they're telling me that this is bogus. How do I put it all together? So I want to give you some, some tools this morning, some handle that will perhaps help you. And I, and I want to say at the outset here, I predominantly believe that apologetics is designed for believers. What do I mean by that? Apologetics is the, the study of verification or authentication of biblical truth. It's the defense of the faith. And the truth of the matter is, you or I are never going to win anybody to Jesus Christ by winning an argument. We're never going to intellectually persuade someone to become a Christian because that is a matter of the heart. The Holy Spirit of God has got to convict the heart of sin, open the eyes relative to truth, and bring them to faith in, in Himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not by might, not by power, but by, by my Spirit, says the Lord. And the Apostle Paul said, when I came to you, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I did not come to you with persuasive words of man's wisdom. So I want to tell you right at the outset that you will never be able to go out there in the world and convince somebody of the gospel of Jesus Christ by arguing with them over science in the Bible. They're, they're, they're not necessarily going to buy into that. When I was in college, I, one, one time uh, a, a famous apologist, apologetics professor, came to our college to lecture. 
And, um, you know, we kind of all glommed around him like a bunch of groupies, kind of hanging on to every word he had to say. And uh, he was this, this famous guy from a major seminary that was, uh, you know, teaching uh, biblical apologetics. Kinda, he wasn't Ravi Zacharias, but he was kind of like today, Ravi Zacharias, you know, or one of those guys. And so uh, it just so happened that one of the students at the college there, his brother was visiting him from out of town, and his brother was an atheist attending a university in another state. And he was visiting him that, that day. And so he said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, will you come and talk to my brother? And, you know, just like a bunch of fools that we were, you know, there was about seven of us that kind of gathered around the professor. And we went to, to, to go to the canteen and drink coffee and talk to this atheistic brother. And they began a debate. And I watched this skilled professor reduce the arguments of this atheistic student to zero just completely annihilated his arguments, brought him to, down to the, to, to the final willingness to say, I have no basis for what I believe other than I don't believe it. And so he asked him the all-important question, what is there to keep you from following Jesus Christ? And he said, I don't want to. I do not want to live like a Christian and come under the rules of the Bible. I want to live the way I want to live. That is the problem. And you will never win somebody to faith in Christ by arguing them into the kingdom, only by praying them into the kingdom that their eyes will be opened and they're enlightened by the Spirit of God. So, when I share with you this morning some of the things that will help I think to at least give you a greater comfort in stating your convictions, it is my own conviction that apologetics is largely designed for the believer and for those people in whom the Holy Spirit of God is already at work and who have legitimate questions that God is more than pleased to answer. Let me make some preliminary observations first of all. One of the things that we need to recognize when we talk about science in the Bible is the Bible is not a scientific textbook or a math text. The Bible was never intended to be that. The Bible was written in ordinary, common language for, for everyday people. It was intended to communicate to us in, in language that we all understand. If you pick up a scientific journal and read the journal, chances are, if you're not trained in the field, you're not going to understand much of what you read. The Bible was intended to be written in a way that all of us could understand the truth that God's conveying. And the Bible speaks in terms that, that are everyday usage. For example, the Bible talks about the sunrise and the sunset. And any scientist, for that matter, any junior high school student knows that the sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. They know that the earth rotates approximately every 24 hours. It spins on its axis as it rotates around the sun, it's also rotating uh, in revolutions, and that it takes about 24 hours to make that complete turn, and different sides of the earth are exposed to the sun during the process, and if you happen to be on the part that's exposed, you call that daylight. 
And if you're on the part that's rotated away from it, you call that nighttime. But what do your scientifically trained meteorologists tell you when they give you the weather report about what's going to happen in the morning a little after 6 o'clock? What do they call it? Sunrise. Sunset. Because it's the language we all understand. It's what we observe. The Bible uses that kind of language to communicate with us. It's not intended to be a scientific textbook. We need to recognize that at the outset. However, let me hasten to say that we also need to recognize that every time the Bible speaks about a matter touching science or history, it speaks truthfully. So while it does not use this precise language of science to describe an event, it uses an observer's point of view, it speaks with divine authority so that what it says is absolutely true in the best way of understanding the sentence. For example, when the Scripture says the world was made in six days in the book of Genesis, I have some handouts there on the back. I hope you picked them up. If you didn't, I hope you do before you leave. But this one, uh, six days, honestly, there's a quotation from a professor in here, Professor Barr, James Barr, who is the Regius Professor of Hebrew at the University of Oxford. Dr. Barr is not an evangelical Christian. In fact, he's liberal. He does not believe the Genesis account. But he is a Hebrew scholar. And this is what he says about the language of Genesis. He says the writer or writers, I happen to think there was only one, his name was Moses, but uh, Dr. Barr says the writer or writers in the language he chose to use and the audience that would have read it would have plainly understood that he was speaking of six literal 24-hour days. That if you look at the Hebrew language, there's no other way to interpret it. It means six literal 24-hour days. That's exactly what it means. I don't happen to believe the Genesis account is true, he says. But the language is plainly understood. And any fourth grader that reads it and thinks, oh, that's talking about six 24-hour days. And that's exactly what the language is intended to communicate. The Bible is meant to be understood in its simplest form. The second thing we need to realize at the outset is that the scientific theory or science is not actually ever in conflict with the Bible. People are in conflict with the Bible who frequently are scientists, but science is not in conflict with the Bible. The Bible is a declaration by God through inspiration of truth, And science is a quest to discover or uncover truth. And legitimate science pursuing truth, if in fact it arrives at truth, will also arrive at God. Now, I don't mean by that that you're going to run down every trail and say, oh, I've just discovered God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is no matter what branch of science you're investigating, it can be anatomy or physiology, it can be astrophysics, it can be uh, geology, it can be chemistry, whatever branch of science you're pursuing, when you run to the trail, uh, the end of the trail of your investigation, and you come up with truth, it will be always in harmony with the Scripture. Because God made whatever they found. And when they find what He made, they'll find that it's in harmony with what He said. 
It is logically inconsistent to think that God could inspire the Bible and then we could discover something in His universe that was incompatible with it. If God is the author of the universe and the author of Scripture, truth is all there is to find. We don't have to be afraid of science. It's never truly in conflict with Scripture. The other thing is that many of the world's greatest scientists were Christians or theists. They were believers. They believed in a God who made everything. People like Roger Bacon, Johannes Kepler, Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, Carolus Linnaeus. You've heard of these people. Michael Faraday, James Prescott Jewell, Gregor Mendel. On and on the list goes. Even Albert Einstein was a theist. And Niels Bohr, I don't know if he kept it to the end of his life, but Niels Bohr was a professing Christian. Two of the great um, theorists of the turn of the last century. Many of the scientists of history were believers. In fact, as we move into the next section of the outline, if you happen to be following it, in fact, one of the single most important a priori assumptions of scientific inquiry and the scientific method is the belief in an ordered universe that consistently behaves according to universal laws that are predictable and measurable and repeatable. Let me ask you a question. If you take, if you're home cooking and you want to make something green that isn't naturally green, and you have food coloring consisting of red, blue, and yellow, how would you make something green? What would you mix? Blue and yellow. How much blue and how much yellow do you think? Equal parts. That would make it green green, wouldn't it? If you wanted it just a little bit green, like limey green, you might use more yellow than, than blue. Okay, how many of you would agree with that? How many of you have done that? <clears throat> One of my favorite things as a child was playing with food coloring. Oh, I mixed and matched colors till forever, you know. What would happen if, if it were not true, if it were true today that yellow and blue made green, but tomorrow yellow and blue made orange? What would happen? You go to your local paint store and you take a paint chip and you say, I want this color. And you hold up the paint chip and it's got a formula in it. And so you want something that's this kind of creamy, very, very soft, warm, beige, off-white kind of thing. So they take, they take white off the shelf, a gallon of it, and they stick it under there. And they add a little bit of yellow and they add a little bit of burnt umber and a little bit of uh, uh, brown. And, and they kind of mix this together, just a little dabble do, you know. And they stir it up and out comes the most outlandish, bright, fluorescent shade of chartreuse you've ever seen in your life. You couldn't run a paint store. All of science is based on the conviction that we live in an ordered universe that is predictable, that what you see today is going to be the same thing that happens tomorrow, that you can measure it, that you can study it, that you can just determine what these laws are, and that they're going to work the same way every time. That conviction came out of the climate of biblical Christianity. 
It was Christians that explained why the or, there is order in the universe because an intelligent God put it all together with order and logic. And therefore, we can predict what we're going to find. The scientific method is based upon a process of incorporating this assumption as well as one other important assumption. And let me underscore this with, with big, bold letters. Because the second assumption of science is, number one, the universe is ordered, consisting of laws that we can, can discover, define, and describe. The next part goes like this. We need to be objective observers. And there's the problem. Because there is no such thing as an objective observer. Every person on the planet has something coloring their perception. Did you know even in the laws of legal evidences and the rules of legal evidences that they have done studies where they have shown a group of people an event projected on a movie screen. They've shown them an event that is kind of traumatic like a crime would be and then they have asked them, they have interviewed them separately and asked them to describe what they saw. Do you know how frequently eyewitnesses get it right? 9% of the time. 9% of the time. They can only accurately testify to about 9% of the facts. And they always differ in what they saw. In fact... Any police officer knows that one of the surest signs that somebody's lying is that all four of them have exactly the same story. They know they've concocted that in their own minds because eyewitnesses always differ because of their perspective, because of their fear, because of the angle where they were standing because of other things that influence them, because of their aversion, because we block things out of our mind. I remember one time, well, the first time I ever had a traffic stop, I was a college student in Tacoa, Georgia, and I was stopped by a police officer for running a red light. And did you know that if I had to testify in a court of law what color that light was, I realized when he stopped me, I couldn't do it. In fact, the minute the, his red lights came on behind my car, I blocked out everything that had occurred within the last four or five minutes. I couldn't remember anything. I had no idea what I'd done. He told me I ran a red light and I took his word for it because I had no idea. I didn't know what color it was. I blocked that out of my mind. It, it was actually horrifying for me as a Bible college student to be stopped by the police for breaking a traffic law. It, it, was, it was just unsettling to the point that I forgot. To this day, I don't know what color that light was. I did pay the fine. I assume that he was right. There's no such thing as an objective observer. But the scientific method, assuming some degree of objectivity, is based upon the following. Careful observation and, control, and controlled environment wherever possible. I want you to listen to these things because they're real important. Careful observation. And I want you to think about the Bible and its conflict with science. Accurate description and precise measurements. 
You know, if you're sloppy in your technique, you're doing poor science. It's just bad. You've got to be accurate in your measurements. You've got to record accurately what you see. Logical deduction and inference. Okay, I did this. This happened. What does it mean? Well, let's try it again. I did this. It happened again. All right, I'm going to try it again. It, same thing happened. What does that mean? You take the what does it mean and you begin to try to formulate some kind of answer. What does this mean? Okay, I think it means this. Let's try applying that to the next step. Science is the process of observing, measuring, repeating, verifying, coming to a conclusion. As far as you know, this is true. Based on this, what does it mean? All right, let's take another experiment and continue to move forward. The ability to repeat it is essential, and ultimately, peer review is what keeps us honest. Some guy does a, a research a study and he publishes his findings in what's called a peer-reviewed journal. And they publish his findings in the journal in the abstract. And, and some guy in India goes, what, those crazy Americans, they've done it again. I think they're crazy. I'm going to prove them wrong. And so he, he takes the same experiment that has been described and he repeats it. And lo and behold, it comes out the same. Well, they're not so crazy after all. And so he publishes his findings. We have verified what the crazy Americans thought. And so they publish that in the journal. And somebody in South Africa does the same thing. And eventually, scientific fact is developed because enough people in enough places have tried the same experiment with the same results. And they found the same conclusions. And they say, this must be true. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who was there when the world started to observe, record, and measure? Any scientist you know? Any scientist I know? I don't know of anyone. No one was there to see it happen. In fact, we cannot speak with scientific accuracy about anything we cannot observe in the present time. I want to emphasize the importance of understanding that concept because any time you try to retrospectively analyze what you think happened, you are bringing a belief system to explain the data that is unprovable. It cannot be proved. No one can say with scientific accuracy how the world was made. It's not possible to answer that as a scientific inquiry because no one can see it. All you can do is take what you see today and attempt to cast it into a framework of what makes the most sense. And it's important that we get that concept because when I tell you that the Bible is never in conflict with true science, it never is. But most of what is touted out there as scientific is not science. It's conjecture. It's a guess. And whenever anybody tells you how the world began, Christian, theist, intelligent design, evolutionist, 
Atheist, it doesn't matter. Whenever anyone tells you how the world began, they are giving you an opinion based on their best guess as they interpret the data, and that interpretation is based on a belief system that they bring to the table. It is not objective. You have to bring the belief system to the table. One of the things that, that I did, I've been planning to do it for a while, and so I, I <clears throat> watched this movie last night, Ben Stein's Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. I want to recommend this to you. Ben Stein is a comedian. He's also a Jew. He's not an evangelical Christian. But he was kind of shocked to find that someone was... Um, thrown out of a university position. Actually, he was the editor of one of the journals of the Smithsonian, and he lost his job because he published an article by someone advocating intelligent design. <clears throat> so it caused him to begin to investigate this phenomena to see if, in fact, in the scientific community, there was a deliberate ostracism and rejection of Christian thinking or even thinking along the realms of intelligent design. And as you go through this movie, he interviews six or more strong proponents of intelligent design who lost their jobs because of their belief. Not because of their science, but because of their belief. And then he interviews about an equal number of world-renowned atheists. And it's really kind of clever the way he's done this, because he keeps weaving in uh, the, the Holocaust of Nazism and also the uh, building of the Berlin Wall and, and the, the blocking out of truth. He kind of weaves that theme in behind the story. It's kind of a fascinating way that he's put it together. But one of the things that becomes obvious as you look at this is that some of the most renowned evolutionists who hold some of the most prestigious positions on the planet harbor great resentment against Christians. They resent, it's, not, it's not a scientific thing, it's an emotional thing. And you just watch the interview you know, one one guy, all he, he couldn't even he couldn't even come up with an intelligent sentence. He said, "Creationism is boring. It's just boring. It's just just boring." I mean, he just kept saying "boring" over and over again. And, and I watched his face, and I thought, "This man is angry. This man is frustrated. This man can't even talk because he's so frustrated." with anything that would suggest creation. Why is he afraid? What is he afraid of? And friends, you and I need to be careful that as believers, we don't fall into that category. We have nothing to be afraid of. Don't get angry over this stuff. Don't, don't uh, hunker down into the defensive posture. We have nothing to fear. If you're seeking truth, truth is all you will ever find when you get there. And it will always be consistent with God. But you, you, you watch this movie, and it's very amazing the, the, um, the, the frustration and the anger that is manifest by the evolutionists. And I'll get to some more of the things that they say in just a moment. 
But some of the things that we know about science, you'll recognize these as the first and second laws of thermodynamics, but some of the things that you'll notice about science is that one of the most celebrated laws is that energy exists, it's neither created nor destroyed. That's one of the first, you can't make energy, it's just, it's there. You can harness it, you can use it, but every time you use it, it tends to move toward a less and less usable state, which leads us to the second law, that energy becomes less and less organized over time. And otherwise, things are winding down, they're unraveling. You can read this uh, pamphlet that I put on the back that lists seven scientists who believe in, in creationism and hold some pretty amazing positions and uh, geophysicists, molecular biologists, astronomers, zoologists, physics, anatomists, nuclear physicists, one of them says, all I see happening is that, that the world is, is coming unglued, things are becoming less organized. He said, I've never seen anything go from, from organization to higher order or better. It always goes to randomness and seems to be falling apart. That's the most observable law in science. And yet evolutionary thinking is that things are moving up and, and advancing. They're not. They're going back in the wrong direction. In other words, the universe began in a highly ordered state, and over time it has been falling apart. Scientific inquiry can only speak to what it can observe. It cannot speak to what happened in the past and is not repeatable. And creation is certainly one of those things. The other thing is, is that you, be, you bring a belief system to the interpretation of the data. You know some of the interesting things about, um, uh, about evolutionary biology. You've all seen the, the neat stack of fossil evidence, right? You've seen that in the textbooks. All the, you, and, and you're led to believe at the very bottom of the strata are these prehistoric weird animals, the trilobites, and, and then you move up and there's some of these, and you move up, and, and as you come up through the layers, you get to more and more ordered species until finally you find people and, and other things in the fossil evidence. And it looks like, okay, that makes sense. There's this neat layer we can dig down through the earth, and the further we go, the older stuff gets. Do you know where on the planet that, that neat arrangement of strata exists? Nowhere. Nowhere. It doesn't exist anywhere on the planet. No matter where they've dug, they've never found that kind of ordered strata. In fact, what they find is things are all mixed up. Th things are all stirred up. They're all confused. It's all indifferent. They're, they're mixed up in the layers. <clears throat> in fact, in, in one of the riverbeds of Mississippi, they actually found a human footprint on top of a dinosaur print in the dinosaur print, which they both, the, the mud had to be mud when they both stepped there for that to happen. But anyway, that's an interesting story. But that it doesn't exist everywhere on the, anywhere on the planet. But you know what does exist? 95% of the fossils are, guess what kind of life? Sea life. 95% are sea life. Do you know where sea life fossils are found? Everywhere. They're found in the ocean. They are. They're found on land. They're found, they're found on top of the mountains. All over the face of the planet, 
you find fossils of sea life. Everywhere on the planet that they have looked, they have found fossils of sea life. How did it get on the mountains? Because at one time, it was under the sea. Do you think that could have been a flood? Do you think the fact that things are all stirred up could have been a flood? Did you know that they've only found about uh, half a dozen to a dozen full uh, skeletons of, of dinosaurs with the long necks? They've only found about six or eight or nine of those things. All the rest of them is just a piece here and a piece there. But of the ones that they've found, do you know what posture every single one of them is in? Neck arched, head up, thrust back in the universal position of something suffocating and gasping for air. Every one of them. What do you think was going on when they died? Why do you think they found veg vegetation in the digestive tracts of woolly mammoths, quick frozen in Siberia, and not just any vegetation, but tropical vegetation in Siberia? Why is there coal and oil and petroleum-type products in Antarctica. What has happened to this planet that best explains the facts? The most logical thing is a universal flood and a catastrophe that occurred to an Earth that was at one time relatively moderate in its climate all over. In fact, one of the uh, scientists quoted in the pamphlet that I've given you back there is the one who won, uh, won a prize for his research in the, the structure of the surface of the earth, and he is one of those who believes that, that there was only one original landmass which was broken up, the continental drift theory, and he won a prize for that. He was associated with Los Alamos, uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory, and in, in his prize, he demonstrated with, with convincing evidence that all of the land of the earth was at one time a single land mass that was somehow broken up and pulled apart and that the ocean floors developed as a consequence of this eruption. You know, it sounds like the fountains of the great deep being broken up to me. It sounds like the scriptures. What makes the most sense? Scientific inquiry is based upon a presumption of objectivity, but no human actually has that. Every single person who goes into their laboratory wants to do something. And that very desire colors their objectivity. Everybody wants to win. If you think there's tough competition on a football field, why do you get into a bunch of scientists who are all trying to find the same thing? Oh man, you want you want some some backbiting. You want some oh he's an idiot. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. You want people that'll tear each other apart. You get a group of scientists together who are looking for the same thing. They want to to give you the 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 impression of you know being very very professional, very calm, very ordered, but they are desperate to get there first. Several things drive that. One is a pure desire to do it. You just want to do it. You want to win. But the other thing is that most science is driven by economics. Nobody goes to their research and development laboratory in any company in America. Nobody walks in the door someday and says, 
gee, I have a totally blank mind today. I don't have a clue what this world holds for me today. I think I'm just going to sit down in my laboratory and throw some stuff together and see what happens today. I'm going to just kind of a free float and free think. Nobody does that. They get paid not to think. Thinking is the process. They get paid to produce something that you can get a patent on so that they can make money. That's ultimately what drives the machine. And while true scientists at heart want to pull back from that a little bit and say, I'm going to maintain the integrity of of my, my research, of my process, the reality is that's still hanging out there over their head. And if you're a research scientist in a university or medical setting or whatever, you have to keep publishing if you want to keep getting grants and want to keep your job. You've got to do it. It's a part of what drives the system. Why does the United States, why do scientists in the United States not spend millions and billions of dollars researching the effect of vitamins on the human body? They do in Europe, they do in Russia. Why don't they here? Because you can't patent it and market it as a pharmaceutical. It's a vitamin for crying out loud. It's a natural substance. You can't patent it and market it as a pharmaceutical. So there's no motive to prove it right. And even if there's a motive, there's no funding because it won't make anybody a profit. Except my wife bought a bottle of B vitamins yesterday. It was $50. Somebody was making a profit. I'd like to know who. I want to find them. But in, in the, the general reality of things is that science is typically driven by motivation that colors the objectivity. And sometimes things are just designed badly. Many deeply held scientific facts have been disproven over time. I I was uh, searching for some of those. I found some interesting stuff. This is amazing. I may actually finish on time this morning. took me an hour last time. Um, I was looking for some scientific facts that have been disproved, and I found some interesting things. Uh, One of the things I discovered, this has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon, but it turned up in a Google search. Did you know that the price that is marked on an item in, in, in the store, that they don't have to sell it to you for that price? Did you know that the legal definition of that advertised price is it is the beginning of a negotiation point? So if you find a shirt marked 33 cents and a stack of shirts marked $33, and you take the 33-cent shirt to the cash register and say, you have to sell me. See, I always thought that was the case. You had to sell me that. You have to sell me that. They don't have to sell you that. They can say, no, we mismarked that. It's $33. They don't have to sell you that at all. Now, if they take your 33 cents and give you a receipt, they've completed the transaction. Now they cannot ask for more money. I thought that was interesting, too. So the idea is to catch the, the, the cashier who's sleeping. And, and, but anyway, that, that has nothing to do with my sermon, but it was one of those interesting facts that I ran across. But there was another one that I ran across that was kind of interesting. What it said was, conventional wisdom says that people who eat less salt live longer. In fact, this was, this was right on Google, in fact, people who eat more salt live longer. This is the truth. People who eat more salt live longer. Does that bother any of you? 
Why, let me ask you this. this is, can, can we be scientists in the room here for a moment? Why does it bother you? Because you've always been saying to your husband or your wife, don't eat so much salt. It's going to make your blood pressure high. Stop eating all that salt. It's going to make you sick. Is that why it bothers you? Does it bother you because you've been wrong all your life? It, 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 it violates common sense? Why does it bother you? You know why it bothers me? How can you prove that? How can you prove that people who eat more salt live longer? And how did they prove it? I didn't read all the studies, but that's what they purported. What would you have to do scientifically to prove that people who ate more salt live longer? You'd have to, you'd have to start with, with people when they were born. Like the, what is it? Is the, where, where, where is it? The study, the great heart study that's been going on for about 50 years now. I forget that one. Up in the north somewhere, you're looking at me blankly, like. <laughs> anyway, Hartford, Connecticut, or whatever, they've been stu- they've been studying heart problems for like 50 years now, and following a whole population of people in a town. You'd ha- you'd have to you'd have to start with birth, and you'd have to go all the way to death, and you'd have to have that baby or his mom or dad or something. You'd have to have that baby measure every bit of salt they ate their entire life. And you'd have to measure a whole population, large enough a statistical sample to be valid. You'd have to measure the whole population over their whole lifetime and how much salt they ate relative to body weight, yada, yada, yada. And when you got to the end, you'd have to say, okay, who lived longest relative to the amount of salt they consumed? Where have they ever done that? Come on. You can't make that statement either way. I thought, what? that's a dumb statement. Sometimes science just goes at it with a bad idea, and they make statements that can't be proven. But anyway, some of the things that have been proven wrong, you know, they used to believe the earth is flat. Nobody believes that anymore, because we saw pictures from space, right? And we know it's round, right? Okay, now they figured it out long before the space race. They used to think that uh, the germs... Well, they didn't even know there were germs. They used to think maggots and things just sprung up out of the meat. Spontaneous generation. Louis Pasteur had to come along and and inform everybody that, uh, no, by his scientific experiments, he had to tell people, no, they don't just spring up. They're put there by other critters that deposit them, or they're in the air, they're born, and that's how they get there. And he proved that, and the germ theory was born. Now, somebody in the 8 o'clock service said Louis Pasteur didn't really prove the germ theory. Somebody else did. Okay, tell me about it if you find that. But one of my favorite is Ignaz Semmelweis. Semmelweis was a Hungarian physician um, who was called the savior of mothers. And Semmelweis is, is kind of important because uh, he found that mothers who were, who were giving birth were dying in the maternity wards. And they were dying of some kind of infection. Them and their babies were dying. And he got very concerned about that because they began to make another interesting observation. And the observation he made was, is that people who were helped in their delivery, mothers who were helped in their delivery by midwives, weren't dying. And any time midwives top doctors... Doctors get nervous. I mean, it just happens that way. That's part of the ego in medicine. And so they begin to ask the question, okay, why are the ones treated by the doctors in trouble and the ones that are helped by the midwives not in trouble? 
And this guy, Semmelweis, noted that the midwives don't do dissection in the cadaver laboratory, but the doctors do, and they go from that laboratory to the maternity ward and do pelvic exams on the women. Uh-oh. Could there be a connection here between having your hands in a cadaver one minute and having your hands, well, another minute in the maternity ward? Could there be a connection? Semmelweis proved by his observation and statistical, careful statistical analysis that doctors were carrying the, bio, the, the, the um, bacterial problems from the cadaver lab and transmitting it to the mothers. And he said, you doctors need to wash your hands with some kind of germ-killing you know, microbicide, you got to do, he was using a core, a type of chlorine. He said, you got to wash your hands. They ridiculed him, laughed him to scorn, made a fool out of him. He ended up at the age of 47, dying in an insane asylum. Wikipedia said he died of injuries he sustained while there, but I've read somewhere else he committed suicide. They thought maybe he developed early Alzheimer's disease, but the point is the poor man went crazy because he was ridiculed and driven to insanity by the rejection of the entire medical community of his day. But guess what happens when you go in the hospital today? What do you find at just about every corner hanging on the wall? This alcohol dispenser. What do you find, you know, when you go see Ruth Sweeney in the hospital? Wash your hands, wash your hands, put the gown on, put the gloves on, take them off, wash your hands before you leave. What do you find? Wash your hands before contact with, with every patient. In fact, studies are being done now because people get tired of that. You know who the world's worst is about not washing their hands appropriately? Ooh, this is bad. It's surgeons. They just get tired of it. And, and so studies have been done that, that, that are showing that people who are failing to wash their hands are causing the transmission of disease within the hospital. But this guy was the first one to believe that you need to antiseptically cleanse your hands before you touch a patient. Good grief. He was laughed to scorn until he ultimately died because of his conflict with his peers Friends, scientists can be very, very arrogant. And one of the things that you will discover if you happen to take the time to, to watch Ben Stein's movie is that when he interviews the great atheist of the world, people who hold most prestigious chairs in some of the best universities, they are clearly emotional in their opposition to intelligent design, the, the, the notion of God, or to creation. They are emotional about it. They hate it. They hate the people who believe it. And why is that? And so one of the things Ben did was <coughs> he asked two of the best-known atheists of our day, let's not talk about the process of life and evolution. Let's just ask the question, how did it get here? How did it start in the first place? Statistically, and most everyone agrees with this, statistically, for the simplest form of life, and I use that word simple loosely because that's an evolutionary term, there is no such thing as a simple form of life. 
But statistically, there have to be the accumulation of about 250 different relatively complex protein molecules that would come together at, at exactly the same time in the right order and arrangement under the right circumstances for life to form. If you compute that statistic mathematically, someone has said this, it would be like putting one over a fraction that would take a textbook over an inch thick to write all the zeros. It's one in trillions times trillions of possibilities. You have to write it as an exponential number because it's too big to even comprehend. In fact, it's so big to comprehend that most people who look at it mathematically say it's not possible. And so Ben Stein asked two of the world's most famous evolutionists. He said, how did life begin? The eminent atheist Dr. Dawkins said, well, in all probability, the earth was seeded. What does that mean? In common, everyday layman's terms, what does it mean that the earth was seeded? Aliens did it. Little people from outer space seeded the earth. Dawkins, uh, Stein pushes him on this. Okay, where did they come from? I don't know. You know? Here is an eminent PhD. How did life get to earth? Aliens. And he doesn't say aliens. He sticks to seeding. But that's what he means. And then he asks another one. Watch the movie because I forgot his name. Watch the movie. He asks another one. He said, how did all those protein molecules come together? And he said, on the backs of crystals. What? On the backs of crystals. You know, and so Stein says, but explain to me how they came together. And he says, I just did. Weren't you listening? They came together on the backs of crystals. What, crystals walk, carrying, each carrying a, a protein molecule? They all walked together and kind of got together and said, now you go here and you go. How did they do that? And, and the guy is incredulous. He just sits there and he says, what, what don't you understand? that the, the molecules came together on crystals. It's like, what don't you understand? You're not even making sense. There is no answer for how life began. Well, I haven't finished my sermon, Todd. Give me a break, man. Outside of the Bible. Did he do it? Okay, alright, I figured I'd get it in just a minute. The only authoritative answer for the origin of life and the best explanation for what is here as we see it is what the Bible says. And I want to say to you this morning, we have learned that the world is not flat. We have learned that germs can be a big factor in the propagation of disease. We have learned to wash our hands before we touch other patients if we're healthcare providers. And I hope you wash your hands when you use the restroom, and especially during cold season frequently because it has now been proven 
that the single best way to prevent the communication of disease is to wash your hands. And one day, the elements will melt with fervent heat. There will be no place in the universe to hide. And every knee and every life will bend before God of gods, God Almighty, on the throne and recognize the earth was made by an almighty creator and all that's in the universe, according to the scriptures, by a holy God who cannot lie and who holds them responsible for their lives according to his moral character. And for most of the people who have ever lived, it will be too late. The goal of our instructions, friends, is love. And it is important for us not to be defensive, not to bluster and blubber about what we don't know anything about, but to hold firmly to the Word of God and firmly to the truth with the confidence that in due time, let God be true, though every man be a liar. He will sustain the test of time and in due season be proven right. And we with confidence can stand on the Word of God and without shame. Think about what you're being told and what you hear. Ask the logical questions. How could that be? Do people who eat more salt live longer? Good grief. How did they come up with that? Just ask the questions. And don't be afraid of the answers, because when you find the truth, you'll always find God. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to your word. I pray that we would not be afraid, for you have never given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of a sound mind, that we could hold our head high with confidence in our Lord Jesus that we could declare the truth with love, with patience and great grace, correcting those who oppose themselves, if by any chance we might, by your power, be used to point them to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for telling us what we could never discover in the laboratory, that we're broken. We need a Savior. And you have loved us with an everlasting love and sought us out, demonstrating it on the cross and giving us life through the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.